All right, welcome to the show this week, True Billy fam. Uh, we have a very special guest on. Uh, we're joined by Lily Lynch, who is uh, phoning in from uh, Belgrade, right? Serbia? Yes, Belgrade, Serbia. <laughs> um, before, before we got on, Aaron, we were just talking about uh, the similarities, perhaps... Here's here's what here's the thing, Lily. Here, here's where I was like, maybe Serbia is like East Kentucky a little bit. I saw this, <laughs> I saw this video. I saw this video of these two guys trying to. They built a ramp on top of one building, and they were trying to jump it onto the roof of another building. And I was like, dude, like, all right, this is East Kentucky. <laughs> these are hillbillies. There's a lot of that kind of stuff. Like, uh, is it was like parkour? Is that what that's called? Is it, or just like, it's not even that. It's not even, just like crazy I, stunts. I think it was like, yeah, it's like, <laughs> if it's not called parkour, it should. I, I thought parkour was the thing where you like run and you do crazy stu- well, stuff. Well, I mean, it. it's parkour now, but they've just upgraded it with vehicles. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. I, They're definitely spiritually connected. Like I feel like the Balkans and just the entire Balkan region in the South really feel like spiritually connected. And like Serbs have this habit of like, claiming like that anybody cool was actually serbian and like anytime there's like a good country singer they're like well, he was actually a serb really like johnny cash you know yeah. <laughs> it's like oh my god that is 100 percent a southern thing definitely yeah okay <laughs> but it's also like i was telling a friend the other day i was like man like east kentucky like uh like you you won't get a good haircut you're not gonna get your suit tailored <laughs> But your car will always run. Like, everyone's a mechanic, <laughs> and, like, everyone's a genius when it comes to cars. It's like, you know, it's like That's at so least... Cool. Yeah, there's some, like, old Yugos on the street that have been around, for, like, God only knows how long up there. Yeah. Like, sound like, yeah, yeah. like, sound like lawnmowers. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, well, everyone is a secret mechanic, you know? Right, right. If your car <laughs> wow. breaks... I don't know how many times my car's broken down and people, like, flock to it. They're like, all right, let's, let's figure <laughs> out what's going on here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very useful, very cool. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing, like, my... So, like, you know, again, a second ago, um, you were talking about, like, um, like media representations of regions and areas that, like, uh, get, like, very popularized in, like, mainstream consciousness. And, like, if you live there, you're like, well, I mean, there's some truth to that and stuff. My, so, like, you know, we were talking about, like, a Ken Burns and Civil War documentary, but, like, the the, the reverse example of this for, for where you live is, like, I have read and watched all of, like, the most boilerplate, like, surface, like, the Rebecca West book, obviously. Sure, which, sure. Like, it's, like... That's actually impressive. That's impressive that you, like, read that. It's a long book. <laughs> let's Let's just say I've read, like... 70 percent of it 75 that's, that's extra- i mean yeah, good work so like that's more than like i'm sure like 95 percent of like balkan experts because it's like such a long book i mean it's very very interesting i think that she's a kind of idiosyncratic personality and person um and was here at a strange time in history but good but i know what you mean like yeah you've consumed the kind of uh the mainstream kind of and that's that's probably what I've consumed about the South, you know, and I would love to be challenged in my, like, with my, like, you know, Ken Burns level, like, Civil War documentary from the 90s, like, knowledge. Well, but yeah, like, well, the the Rebecca West thing is, like, yeah, like, she is a great writer. That's why I like to read it, because she's a great writer. Um, Incredible. 
and uh hitchens did the intro to that though and i you know like that'll come back up later once i you know i i wanted to bring up hitchens in a minute but um the other thing that i have watched and um you know about like serbia and like well first of all i watched this movie coriolanus the other night which is filmed in belgrade actually i haven't um, seen this was it was it a recently made it's movie like, it's like 12 years ago it was um Joseph Fiennes and uh, oh my Gerard god, they, they gave him they gave him the Serbian citizenship. For, <laughs> the Serbian <laughs> government gave him a passport Wait, for the, for <laughs> and, the movie. Yeah, yes, for filming in Belgrade. Sorry to interrupt you. And like the the, the sort of I, I, I would call him a kind of a dictator here in Serbia. Like he like he has used like clips for, of like Ray Fiennes and like Harry Potter in his like election campaign last month. <laughs> oh my god! No, no. <laughs> yeah. Harry Potterfication of yes. global politics. Exactly. Everywhere. It's not just America. It's, it's also here. It's yeah. also in Serbia. It's like, That's, yeah, and it's usually a liberal thing, but he's like a right-wing populist. So, yeah. The Vucic, is that his name? Vucic. Mm-hmm. Vucic. The, the crazy thing I learned about him is that he like aired one of his opponent's sex tapes on like morning TV or <laughs> something. <the> fuck? <laughs> yes, the f- yes. They uh, so basically his house. I know this guy is like a friend of mine. Uh, his house was broken into. It was like a break in, and his, one of his laptops was stolen. And then that was like a year ago. And then last month, just a couple weeks uh, ahead of the campaign, this guy's a. He's kind of a green left uh, politician. Uh, obviously, opposition. An enemy of Vucic. Um, he played. There was a sex tape on this on this laptop, and the government played it on pro-government morning television, <laughs> morning TV. Like it's very graphic sex tape, like private recording. So if you're getting ready for work and your kids are getting ready for school <laughs> and it's just airing in the morning while you're drinking your coffee, Jesus man. No low is too low. That's right. It's just total trash. It's like yeah, it's 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 unbelievable they do stuff like that. But that's that's kind of gives you insight into how the media is used sort of for his own to settle his own scores and to kind of attack his own enemies. Yeah. Very odd place, yeah. Incredible. Um Coriolanus was a uh, a Shakespearean is a Shakespeare play, uh, but finds ad- adapted it for like a modern Balkans context. And uh, wow, it's, it's actually not a bad movie. I think it's actually pretty good because it's it does like the Romeo Juliet thing with um, you know the Leonardo DiCaprio movie where he retains yes. all the original dialogue and stuff, and like it works. Yeah. I think it's. He just updates it. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I kind of liked it too. And it, yeah. Um, so I should check that out. I feel bad for, like boycotting it because it's been used for like political, because like Ray Fiennes, however you pronounce his name, um, he's been used like by the Serbian government. To, but I should not let this uh, deter me from watching the movie. I'll give it a chance. You should watch it. The, um, for sure. And then finally, the other thing is the four-hour BBC documentary, uh, Death of Yugoslavia. Um, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, it is. I think it's it, pretty it's decent. very good. Um, yeah. One of the filmmakers, like, married a guy who had the same name as, like, a war criminal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it happens, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, was it Laura Silber she made the film? And I think, yes. that, yeah, she's, I think she married a Serbian guy. His name is Dusan... Um, something um that's right dushan some i don't know his last name but um but yeah i actually think that that's quite a decent film um yeah, they did a quite a good, good job yeah yeah um, i should re- refresh 
and watch it again now. But yeah, I thought it was good. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, BBC has a lot of archival footage as well, right? That's in that documentary. That's pretty good. Interesting. Yeah, there is incredible yeah. archival footage in that documentary. Um, yeah, yeah. It's very fascinating that war being, you know, one of the first that was really televised. Um, right. So, yeah, very, very interesting. Well, um, that's like a good, maybe that's a good way to segue into what I wanted to talk about today. Um, because we wanted to have you on to discuss some of your recent writing. Um, specifically, so you write for the New Statesman and the New Left Review. And... Um, you know, I've been reading a lot of your recent stuff, and um, especially since, because you know, you were writing a lot more about Ukraine, like in the fall, and uh, you know, you, we've we've talked a lot about Ukraine on the show. Uh, obviously, we haven't really talked about it at all in the last three months. Um, right? Uh, yeah, understandably. It's like, um, you know, it's it's really wild. Like, you know, Aaron can attest to this. Like, it was kind of one of our hobby horses, and then. Mostly because, like, in my small town in East Kentucky, like, even the mayor was putting up Ukrainian flags around town. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I know. I went home for, like, eight months last uh, last year, and it was, like, Ukraine flags and, like, all the neighbors' like, lawns and I don't know. It, or, like, it was so weird. It was so weird. And, of course, I, I just, not the same. I, I, I just thought it was interesting that um, I saw that the New York Post apparently... Apparently they had a Ukrainian flag on their masthead. Oh, I guess. they took and it I down. Think, I think. I think. Yeah, they took it down once. You know, <laughs> once uh, Palestine and um, and uh, Israel. Once that uh, that conflict arose. You know. I mean, you, we've all kind of. It's understandable to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it, it it just reminds me of that. Um, sorry, Terrence. It just reminds me of that meme with the um. With the guy walking with the girl with the uh, yeah with the red with the dress and there's that girl with the red dress and he turns back to look at her you know what I mean just sort of the the vagaries of the liberal order when it comes to international conflicts and what I mean you talk about it in your piece and this kind of selective you know right um, selectivity uh, uh, humanitarianism right um, well let's stick a pin in that I want to talk about Ukraine um, in a second but like what I really wanted to talk about like so you you wrote something in the New Statesman about yeah like the the title says like the death of humanitarianism and i and like your article really gets at this really bizarre phenomenon uh that you know might sound kind of obvious but like when you spell it out the way that you do i'd never really like considered it this way before but like you have the u.s giving both bombs to israel and also claiming to give humanitarian aid to gazans so it's like, I think as you say, it's almost like providing the weapon to create the wound and then providing the Band-Aid for it. So it's like... It's almost like vertical, in, vertical integration of genocide and humanitarianism. Right. It's very creepy and Kafka-esque almost. You know? it is, I think it's the future, too. I mean, it's like yeah. this kind of terrifying, like this idea that I was talking about, about it with my editor, about like humanitarianism being used to justify ethnic cleansing and genocide. Like yeah. in the future... Like, because, okay, we're keeping the population alive, or we're giving them food, or we're giving them water or shelter. So, does that justify these, you know, these, this genocide? You know, it, or like, or at least uh, mitigate, like, our responsibility somehow? It's very, very gross and potentially very scary. Yeah. Well, it seems like 
the the Iraq war was kind of maybe the first like test case for this but like with Iraq they tried to make it seem like it still had these very lofty ideas right it's like we're gonna do interventionism but like you know obviously like we starved them through sanctions then we invaded and then we gave them like democracy and um so it's like you know still in this realm of like these very lofty ideas that were kind of indicative of that moment in like 90s early aughts you know idealistic you know polarity and everything but now it's like this very degraded version of it right it's like there's not even any pretense to any larger ideals like no one's even invoking any kind of like universal principles or anything it's all just like blatant it's vulgar it's really incredible. Power, power politics. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And I think I had mentioned that we mentioned it in the last episode, but it's um, it's also sort of there's not even anymore the appearance of you know pretense yeah. or any moral sort of fortitude. You know, it's just yeah. now, it's yeah. just like mask off. You know, it's Biden saying things that I mean have just been the most disgusting, grossest, most evil things I've ever heard in any president or even any of his officials like Anthony Blinken or Josh Kirby. It's just, I mean, yeah, it's completely just mask off. Yeah, yeah. And I'm kind of glad in a, in a way that it happened under the Democrats because you got to see, I feel that in a way, if if this would have happened in our, under a Republican administration, that like the Democrats would have you maybe profaned outrage and yeah. they would have pursued a more kind of um, a different policy. But now we're seeing the true um, uh, face. Like, yeah, mask off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, that's actually a great point because you're right. Like, if it was a Republican, then all the liberals would line up and say, like, oh, this is just a natural extension of, like... Trumpism. You know, either conservative or neoconservative politics. Right. Um, right. But, like, as you point out in the piece, like, you... It's fa- it's very fascinating because not only did I read this piece, but I, like, re- read your, like, deep dive on, like, the new Serbia um, for the oh, new wow. left review. It's <laughs> fascinating. Because, like, you know, obviously, fas- Serbia's fascinating. Um, it is, yeah. But, like, it's really crazy because, like, with Serbia and, like, with the Balkans wars in general, like, you can really dial in on this moment of, like, high liberal order idealism in the in the 90s. And um, mm. so, like, your your article for the New Statesman, like, opens up with, like, Kosovo, right? Like, April <laughs> 1999. And, like, the New York Times is declaring it, like, a template for the new millennium. Um, you link that Bernard Kushner op-ed, which I read... And it's fucking insane. You have to remember, this guy was like an anti-colonialist, like, stu- like he was like a communist student protester in yeah. Paris in 1968, and he was very radical. Uh, and this is him in middle age, you know. It's like kind of a cautionary tale that he, yeah, be- uh, he, yeah, he's become very um, kind of pro-imperialist, but uh, using the rhetoric of human rights, of course. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and you said you read the entire op-ed. I read the op-ed, yeah. It's fa- and it's fascinating, and I brought up Hitchens a minute ago because Hitchens had the exact same trajectory. He was like a, you know, Trotskyist, like socialist in the 60s, early 70s, and by the early 2000s, he's come to also embrace this, like, militarized version neocon. of... Neocon. He's become a neocon, right. And, um, and there is a through line there, as you point out in the article. It's like this melding together of like activist sensibilities of the '60s, and this like in, in like these higher ideals of like humanitarian universalism and everything else. 
So it's like he invokes the thing that like Hitchens would always invoke, which is that like cultural relativism and like um, female uh, genital mutilation in Africa is pretense for invasion and war and that kind of stuff, you know? Right, it's, it's almost right. it's almost like like liberalism's kind of moral precepts have sort of colonized like these people's thinking. You know, I mean, I don't know. I just see this pattern where you have older radicals. It's they either turn out to be total cranks or remain to be awesome until until right. old age. Yeah, you know? and I just don't yeah. understand what that is. Whether it's like this sort of acquiescence, you know, mm. to there is no alternative and this is the way the world is, or I mean, I don't know. Or I mean, they're just getting funded or paid by somebody to say this stuff right yeah 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 I, I do wonder about that i think there was a whole generation of people who kind of participated in like the student protests in 68 i've written about <clears throat> the german green party as a sort of great uh, example of this not yeah. to get too far off track but they used to be a real anti-war party and 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 you know protest against like the stationing of like u.s missiles in europe and um you know had a you did you know, stand, or at least, at least give like rhetorical support for decolonization. And then, you know, today they're kind of the most like neoliberal, hawkish, pro-war. They're almost like out hawking Biden on, on sometimes on you, on like a arms. And it's, it's, it's this sort of, it was an interesting trajectory. So this, the, the, the people, the, the, the new left of 1968, that which was like kind of the, the the Green Party is kind of comprised of those people. The, they were founded by this was founded by those people. Today now kind of turning into like these hawkish militants and like of course they invoke like feminism and like like you know um, human rights, but it sort of is like a, a mask for sort of more like naked aggression. I think in a way. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Bernard Kushner op-ed has like these very bold statements which is like a country will never again invade another sovereign country and it's like literally that is three a really bold thing to say <laughs> what year is this 99, 99. yeah uh, that's like that's like that's like the new york times say that like you know a man will never fly in the air right like in a, unless it's a thousand years and the wright brothers accomplished that in like you know in like less than a decade you know <laughs> really crumbled pretty fast so it's yeah. like i mean the the, the, the hubris of, the, of like this unipolar moment like immediately after the cold war when there was you know this when russia was in tatters and like china was no not you know the power that it is today they just really uh were there it was like a really avant-garde thinking though you can see that activist thinking there yeah um but let's just harness the tools and power of you know like I don't know, the United States military (laughs) and uh, NATO and, uh, you know, use it to kind of, uh, um, I'm sure, the thing is, I'm sure that uh, there are a lot of people who are true believers and well-meaning, but I do think that within that, there were also uh, people who realized that they could just, um, that they could use these concepts as a cover um, for, you know, pursuing whatever U.S. militarism around the world. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like they were high on their own supply. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like they're dizzy. Yeah, yeah, it's it's exactly right. Well, that's they're frenzied, is what it is. Yeah, and and that's and that's really what's so fascinating that like your article charts this almost like I think you used the word Kafkaesque earlier, Aaron, but it really is this almost Kafkaesque trajectory from like high idealism about humanitarian intervention 
to this very cynical embrace of just humanitarian pauses. We've gone in 20 years Oof. from humanitarian intervention to humanitarian pauses. You know what I'm saying? It's uh, very strange. I mean, we, we, we went from humanitarian pauses to, God, I'm forgetting, what was the second term that they started using? Oh, they started using another term after humanitarian pauses. Instead, of, instead of, they wouldn't say ceasefire, but I remember Bernie saying that as well, and that was just right. within a couple weeks. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. I wish I could remember the term. I can't remember it, but I mean, like, it's like every term that they throw to the wall. It just kind of evaporates, you know, immediately because it's meaningless, you know? Yeah. Well, and... And I guess, like, that's the thing. Like, I wanted to, again, I wanted to dial into this, like, moment um, of, the like, the late 90s, right? In, like, the early 2000s. Like, this, like, the, as you call it, like, a unipolar moment. Like, wh what was it about this moment that, like, imbued these people with these, like, very, you know, like I said, these grandiose, almost sort of, like, dizzying, like, ideals for remaking the world? Like, what was the context in which they were developing these ideas? Well, um... As we've already discussed, I think part of it was this post-Cold War. They were feeling very triumphant, like victors, you know, and they decided that, you know, that they could go further, um, that we could, that now the U.S. didn't really have any predators in the world and that it could kind of do whatever it wanted to. I think there was also sort of a millennial sense of like, okay, the, the year 2000 is here. The internet then was just right. kind of becoming adopted. And so there was this idea that like, you know, the world was going to be more globalized, kind of borders were going to be dissolved, sovereignty would be dissolved. And if you remember in 99, there were also these mass anti-globalization uh, protests in right. Seattle against mm. the WTO, which was yeah. another kind of supranational organization that was kind of going to be the arbiter of international economic relations which the kind of globe, many countries in the global south really saw as a kind of a neoliberal tool uh, of the West. And so it was, there was a kind of a lot converging. And of course you have, you know, it's weird to think now, but like you, you do have like, you had CNN really broadcasting images of atrocities perpetrated here in this region um, into people's living rooms. I think to a degree that, that you'd never had with any other war. I mean, you, we did see some in Vietnam and of course, there was a sort of uh, when Americans were dying and when there were images of like American soldiers dying that obviously kind of was a it, it, it fueled part of the anti-war it fueled the anti-war movement. So but watching other people uh, dying, I think this was really the um, really new. And so there, I think it was a combination of things This sort of sense of the future is here. What kind of world do we want to live in in the 21st century? Um, the U.S. is kind of alone as the global superpower. Um, and just sort of how can we put these ideals from the 60s into sort of a, you know, military context or like how can we use these ideals for good? Um, and uh, yeah, and again, technology, internet. Um, yeah, it's very interesting kind of convergence. I mean, you could really... Um, yeah, yeah, it's really, really fascinating. I, I think that, I think the, um, the sort of, I want to say the weaponization of the 24-hour news cycle, you know? Mm. Because you were right, in Vietnam, you know, at that point, and I also think of, this is, I don't want to get too off topic, but I think of Martin Luther King's march on Edmund, Edmund Pettus Bridge, mm. and how many white liberals had seen black organizers marching, marchers yeah. getting their asses beat by the cops, and how much that was sort of the, the fulcrum by which the liberals and Democrats just sort of twisted and said, hey, we were in support of the civil rights movement, right? I'm willing to go at least meet some of these demands. And sort of, you talk about in the piece sort of how CNN 
was only one-sidedly showing you these atrocities. And I don't want to get too far ahead, but how now with social media and the, the TikTok outrage and what we're seeing, the fact that this access to information, or at least the information we're seeing has become, the access has become more horizontal, yeah. more, right. you know what I mean? Where now right. we're not only seeing atrocities committed by Israel that Palestinians are showing, but we're also seeing groups like Hamas, well, right, and show right. their own, you know what and I mean? And we're also right. seeing right. IDF soldiers, I just cannot get past this. It's, it's incredible, just IDF soldiers like doing skits and like, that, I mean, I, I can't not mention this, but Jesus yes. Christ, man, like, they were trying to rig a building to detonate it and ostensibly do one of their dumb fucking skits in fr before it and then just wound up... I think, like, a, an Al-Qasim fighter wound up, like, finding them and, sh and like, shooting a thermobaric <laughs> missile and it just blew the whole thing up. I mean, <laughs> I could you not laugh, man? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's funny as hell, man. It's just, it's just some, like, Three Stooges shit, man. Like, I don't know. It's, it's just insane. Well, and then... What was so... I guess what was so... There's like, uh, yeah, okay, so it's like, yes, like, you know, fuck these assholes, because like, you know, that is something that's incredibly new, right? Like, I mm -hmm. have, gr I have been online since I have been like 12 years old, right? Like, I'm, I'm 36 now, but it's like, most of my life I've been online, and it's like, I've never seen like war crimes like it as like a spectacle in this way. It's really yeah. fucking, it's insane. It's, it's, it's not even as if, it's almost as if like... I don't know, because we all know that it's a spectacle, right? But it's like, they know that we know, yeah. and they don't care that we know, and That's... it's the point that it's a spectacle. Well, you know? and, and what adds a, another dimension of surreality to it, and we got at this on our premium episode from this past weekend, but I just watched another video of them grilling one of these State Department spokesmen, and it's <sighs> just, it's just like... What, well, something that all the reporters it really generally feels like these reporters are about to like revolt against these fucking State Department spokesmen because it's like they keep pressing on them like you've seen these videos they make jokes about blowing up city blocks right. like like how do you account for that and like all they say now like they don't do anything anymore except say we're raising the concerns. Those are private conversations. We won't tell you about the private conversations. But there's not been a meaningful increase in the number of trucks or in the flow of aid that's been getting in since October. This is a process that we will continue to work towards. For how long? Uh, it is, we, as long as this conflict is happening, the delivery of humanitarian aid and doing so at a greater rate, at a higher clip, and uh, increasing how much is going into Gaza will continue to be a priority. Well, what about on the other, other issues, on the civilian infrastructure, the civilian casualties? Does it not feel to the U.S. like it is pushing on a closed door when it comes to rhetoric that it's employed? <clears throat> we have been direct in our conversations with the government of Israel uh, when we have seen um, instances of uh, actions that we believe are contradictory to uh, the principles that we believe uh, uh, the region should be abiding by or are contradictory to the very clear principles the secretary laid out uh, in Tokyo uh, in the fall, specifically uh, when we see things like efforts around a buffer zone or when we see efforts around the destruction of civilian infrastructure uh, we 
have raised those things publicly from up here, uh, but we also have raised those pi privately in the around-the-clock active conversations that we continue to have with our Israeli interlocutors, and we'll continue to do so. Let me ask it this way. Is the U.S. considering anything other than conversation as a tool to affect change in, Israeli, in, in Israel's behavior in this conflict? I have no uh, new policy or, or new assessment to offer, uh, but uh, we'll continue to have our conversations with the Israeli government and uh, we'll continue to work at this. And it's like, it's just created this very strange disjuncture, right? It's like you say, Lily, it's like, it was a lot of this was based on this idea that like, oh, all information will be out there and transparent. You'll be able to see all of it. And therefore, that will then allow you the, to pressure people in power and say, look, this is the information. This is what's going on. Make X, Y, and Z changes. We ha now have a extreme, you know, push in one direction where we see everything, but there's no corresponding change <laughs> in the other direction. I don't know. Right. It's just, just right. It is, I, I kind of can't believe that they didn't envision that the internet would, in, would like someday shed light on crimes in which we were the you know the west was complicit they yeah. like, how did they think they could only use it and you know to to sh uh, lift the curtain on what what its enemies uh what our enemies are doing you know it's just it's it's so bizarre that they couldn't see ahead. maybe maybe it's hindsight is 2020 and maybe i'm just thinking i'm too clever i think the i think it's like what it is is that they couldn't even conceive that americans would be doing this but part of this is the the framework of it is and you know you talk about like the international criminal court and stuff part of the framework is that like only people that are brown or black Yes. Commit war crimes and are yep. and, and and engage in this these very nasty barbaric backwards ideas like ethno nationalism, like that's yep. part of the whole idea, yep. you know. I, Absolutely. Yeah, which, which which I have to say is absurd, given obviously what we all know here and what everybody knows, including <laughs> yeah. my family back in Jamaica, that they were not the perpetrators of right. ethno nationalism. You know what I mean? Right. I, it's just I mean it's I, it's just I, I think what's 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 insane is that. They didn't suspect that the internet and access to information would, like you said, Lily, reveal crimes. They thought that they could only use it to, you know, and they could control it. But now it's like meaning. We, we, we talked about the show um, a lot. Meaning has become reversed, right? Yeah. And flipped, you know? So despite the fact that they are being challenged with these contradictory images that we're seeing, it's almost as if they shut down you know like i'm almost like i've talked about like them almost looking like they're gonna have an aneurysm or how <laughs> anyone hasn't stroked out had an aneurysm yet because i just don't understand how you can't you know what i mean how you can't reconcile or con like reconcile these contradictions yeah. and continue to like lie to people you know it's i don't know it's just it's absolutely shocking I and mean, if you think of it like going back to 99 and looking at to, like, comparing it to today how the idea that the U.S. would kind of be the sole arbiter of human rights uh, right. and like, you know, the sole right. like kind of the custodian of human rights right. internationally. Like it, it's, you know, and I, it, it, it just, it just, we've, we, what, what world have we kind of entered into? No, I think that like, that's a great point. And it's, you know, gets into like, so like if we're detailing some of these features of like what we term like this sort of, high moment of unipolarity if we're like looking at some of the core features of that one of which is this like you know very idealistic invocation of of humanitarianism and 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 more than that just like what is to to me one of the most idealistic ideas in human history the humanitarian intervention right that like mm -hmm. as you point out in your 
article started out as this very idealistic thing and then 20 30 years later we see the consequences of that where we're having it we're having wars waged in the name of humanitarianism and seeing with our very own eyes and then the united states trying to play both sides of that but like another feature of this moment that you talk about is the establishment of of kind of like international criminal justice system to like prosecute human rights abuses and stuff I, I kind of wanted to talk about, like, you know, what were some of these institutions and doctrines? Like, you talk about, like, the International Criminal Court responsibility to protect, like, these things. Like, what what were some of these institutions and ideas, in, and uh, what were they created to respond to, like, specifically? Mm. Yeah, so the, um, the International Criminal Court was established... So... Uh, before the establishment of the International Criminal Court, you had the establishment of two ad hoc tribunals to try uh, violate uh, war crimes. Uh, the first was uh, 93, the um, International Tribunal um, uh, that would persecute, prosecute crimes uh, in Yugos- former Yugoslavia. Mm, right. And then a couple years later, uh, you had the ad hoc court established for to prosecute genocide in Rwanda. Um, and then in 98, you had the establishment of the International Criminal Court, um, which is the permanent court. The other two were just kind of like yeah, ad hoc. Right. Um, so the, 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 it, it's, it's a very interesting, it, from, from the beginning, it was very controversial with much of the global south because it was seen as sort of a white man's court. You know, uh, I have a friend here who says like, you know, international justice is for uh, Africans and Yugoslavs. You know, it's right. not really for like, you know, the West. And, and, and you can see even just like the United States is not party to the convention that this is the International Criminal Court doesn't recognize the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. And actually, I don't know if you I think I wrote about this in the article. There's something under Bush. Uh, we passed something called the Hague Invasion Act. So it, in the event that any American citizen is ever held uh, accountable for crimes in the Hague, well, the U.S. can like militarily invade the Netherlands. <laughs> I just, I just have to say that, like, not to interject too much, but um, I heard that before. But you know, just, just something that you just don't remember. One of the many things about this country or about the way this world works that you kind of just stock into the back of your brain because it's just kind of really horrifying <laughs> to think about. Much, like much. if you play that scenario out, and I'm just think it's really morbidly funny and terrifying uh-huh. in a bush era especially the united states invading the netherlands like it's just we live in a we are to continue sorry Lily, we live in a bizarre world is what it is that's really insane. it's it's it's, it's unimaginable it's yes yeah, i totally understand why you like why I, I kind of have to like push it to the back of my mind too because it's so absurd that it just kind of if it's like constantly on my mind i'll kind of go crazy uh, that you like not be able to deal, um, but yeah, like it's so. Okay, the U.S. is not uh, does not recognize the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. Israel doesn't. And Israel also tried to the, get them to like, didn't they? They tried to get them like defunded. At right, some point. It, it's it's fun and vulnerable to lobbying. So Israel was lobbying actual member states, telling them to pull their funding for the International Criminal Court when. Uh, it was there was it was suggested that the International Criminal Court would look into crimes committed by Israel against Palestinians. Yeah, they were so like, God, we got to nip this in the bud." So, so, right. so wait, wait, wait. Are there no? Are there? I mean, obviously not. But 
And I mean, I can't even ask how are there not. But it, I think it would make sense that you would have protections that would prevent lobbying, right, of the Internet. I mean, we don't even we don't have that American politics, but you would assume that an international court, those protections would be in place. But I mean, who created that court, right? You know, yeah, you would think. But like, I, I, I don't know. I, it, it, it's unfortunate that it's like, you know, still the best justice that money can buy, you know, it's, there's still so much money in, in the system and like, the, well, it's no, I mean, I think it's kind of obvious that wealthy Western countries have been able to, you know, evade consequences or accountability for so long in part because they probably can like throw money around. Um, at least that's, that's the perception, I think, in a lot of uh, countries of the global South. Um, which is why this court case, you know, this is a different court, the International Criminal uh, Court of Justice, that where, where South Africa has brought this case against Israel. Um, that's why this is kind of so, you know, revolutionary. But also, I think it's important to note that this court, um, where South Africa has brought this case against uh, Israel, uh, was founded in 1945. So it was founded right after the World War World War Two, and it was. Both the Soviet Union and the United States supported the creation this creation. So, in a way, the '90s and the ICC were an attempt to kind of override this sort of charter international system that kind of had buy-in, um, a little bit more buy-in. I, I would say that it still is a court that you know is you know highly imperfect and like plagued with inequality, um, uh, inequalities, especially between the global South and, and the West and the global North. But um, it, there is something to the fact that I, th- I think that this court uh, it did was not, um, came out of the, 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 you know, the ashes of World War II um, and the recognition that we really don't want anything, any horrors to happen again. So I think that that's, that's significant. Um, whereas again, yeah, the ICC is more of a creation of the, of the unipolar moment after the cold war. Well, yeah, it seems like the culmination of probably what the United States liberal order wanted throughout the 20th century. I think that it, there was a, a recognition that I think someone even said it, like I was again, reading real dilettante hours, but reading the wikipedia page for the international criminal court and someone said that like it would be impossible to make while the soviet union still existed um right right and uh Mm. but it's interesting that like in the 90s you get these once again to return to this what we were talking about earlier and i'm showing my age here a little bit but like i i mean i remember in high school like these uh, you know, obviously, like the letter writing campaigns and stuff like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, like these moments of like high humanitarianism. And like you, you point out here, like this idea of like responsibility to protect. None of all these right. things have been invoked during, yeah. um, you know, all the things going on right now, like Sudan and Gaza, like they, these, they're almost like relics of a bygone era. We still use them, uh, maybe perhaps the legal frameworks around them. But uh, they're not really invoked in the court of public opinion anymore. They're not invoked even by the press or anything. Um, the, the principle of a responsibility to protect is another, yeah, it, absolutely another relic of a sort of unipolar 90s. I mean, this, this, I, it was never like a binding like law. It was a principle um, that can't, it was really born out of a, the idea that there should never be a Bosnia or a Rwanda on the international community's watch ever yeah. again. Um, and 
although in the, the UN did kind of adopt it in 2005 as sort of a non-binding sort of principle over, through which like international relations would be governed, it would uh, supposedly constrain states um, and uh, it permitted, you know, military action in the event that uh, a state was not protecting its own citizens from genocide or per- perpetrating a genocide against its own citizens or and other war crimes. So that was 2005. Um, in, it was invoked in 2011 in Libya. Um, and unfortunately, the NATO intervention in Libya was kind of a disaster. Yeah. Uh, it really yeah. massively exacerbated the, the, what was happening. And like, you know, you saw the emergence of slave markets there. Like, I mean, there's a range of opinions that people have about like how disastrous like the U the, uh, the NATO intervention was, but it was, I think by any judgment, it was horrifying. And Libya today is like a, basically a failed state. And, um, so I, I think what happened after that is people realized that, you know, does this, what did the so-called humanitarian interventions, uh, even quote unquote work, uh, and th- that was kind of the death of responsibility to protect. Um, a couple of years later, I think the United States attempted to rally support for, you know, um, tried to invoke responsibility to protect or humanitarian intervention in the context of Syria. And then at that point, um, Russia and China realized, okay, this is being used as a tool of like U.S. whatever, the, especially because of the, the, the kind of grisly death that, that good Gaddafi kind of uh, it was met by, and and Hillary Clinton said like we came we saw he died or right. whatever, a very kind of grotesque way, way of putting it. Um, so I think then it, it was it really kind of arguably died then, um, but then it was I think at the same time it's just there's a different level now what we're seeing because we've seen subsequent ethnic cleansings even in. Um, of Armenians just like a couple of months before yeah. the war in Gaza started. I mean, Sudan, the largest like displacement of people. I mean, it, 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 and then and Gaza is just like culmination of this. Um, so just nothing, no invocations of responsibility to protect. But what you do see, which is fascinating, is the West enemy is now using this language right. um, yeah. to sort of uh, and and that it's 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 really fascinating because we think of it as being cynical. But I would imagine that that's exactly kind of how they see, you know, the global North invocations of it, as they see it as also yeah. cynical. Um, so yeah, it's very interesting ideological blowback. It's something that um. It's something that you see constantly, I think, in like, um, you know, in uh, in movements, in liberation movements across the global South, right, or even in America, right, and you know, in the Black communities, it's like you provide these liberal rights, right? Yeah. And you say that all men are created equal, and you say that every you know state is sovereign, and you say all these things, and then people of color, you know, and colonized people look at that and they say okay then i'm going to actually fulfill that you know right and then you know the west and the north goes like wait wait wait, 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 wait. not we yeah. didn't mean not we like didn't that. mean that way you know <laughs> like I, I can't remember i can't remember you could cut this out terms because i might i don't remember what president obviously i'm really bad with dates but it reminds me of ho chi Minh, you know yeah, yeah. going to god who was it man was it fdr i think right to ask Maybe him to stop eisenhower 
eyes and it might i forgot who it was but it was asking them to stop you know uh, um uh, the, the continued colonization right oh he was a huge and fan of george washington and the yeah, declaration yeah he of was like i believe in all of these precepts of like <laughs> yeah. liberal democracy so this is what i want for my country yeah and they were like nah dude what the fuck are you talking about yeah get out of here with that right. shit. so it's like i just it's just chickens coming home to roost right you can't provide people and say all these things and expect that they're not going to call your bluff. Well, right? yeah, and I think that the thing is, is like if we're charting the trajectory of how this fell apart, I, I, and I guess I shouldn't be too premature because it hasn't fallen apart yet. It is obviously, mm. like I said, it's degrading. It is falling apart. But I think that charting the trajectory of, of how it has developed, I think the, the role of Russia here is like something mm. in kind of trying to, tie this into what's going on with ukraine like as you point out in the article like russia was really burned by the 2011 intervention in libya like i didn't they i think they voted against it at the u.n security council mm-hmm. and and i think that wasn't even the first time like i i could be getting this history entirely wrong but i think that in the 90s didn't they also disagree with kosovo intervention like didn't they also I think that the Kosovo um, intervention by the by U.S. And, and NATO was kind of a huge turning point in Russia-U.S. relations to an extent that, like, Americans don't fully comprehend. Yeah. Um, I think that it really started there, this rift. Um, you know, uh, there were mass protests in Russia, and there's always kind of some, like, lingering anti-American sentiment in Russia after the Cold War, you know, that never went away. But what the change was... Uh, that who was protesting you know it used to be sort of like maybe diehard you know Soviet nostalgic people or uh, and now it was like students um, people who were sort of more moderate quote-unquote moderate uh, not just nationalists so you had these mass protests um, and we also similar similarly um china also i don't I mean i don't know if you heard this i don't think i've written about it anywhere but um the only target of that entire night uh, intervention in the um in yugoslavia in 99 that was selected by the cia was the chinese embassy in right. belgrade and we hit the chinese embassy several people died including some chinese journalists they have never Forgotten that there were mass protests. I think that even like in in one Chinese uh, city, uh, the the consulate was stormed. I mean, it was really huge. And actually, I was there. At the I, I had a tour of the cultural center recently, and um, on the site of the where this embassy was, and they have a memorial that and, and Chinese tourists come. Like that, I was there. It was like crowded with like you know um, young kind of um, cool looking kids like putting flowers in it's like a pilgrimage site yeah like they, they have never forgotten it so yeah absolutely this is like like this um 99 and and the, the 90s in general um was definitely a point of like diver a point of like rupture right. uh between russia and the united states and of course then the the war on terror there was more collaboration briefly and so there was a thinking that there could be kind of but that like Russia and the United States could work together because Russia would talk about how it had a so-called terrorism problem in Chechnya. But then that moment passed. Uh, and then 2008 uh, would be another big moment of rupture when Kosovo declared independence from um, Serbia. Uh, Russia saw this as a violation of Serbia's territorial integrity and sovereignty. And so so China and, and Russia, uh, Russia together have really 
push this idea of like sovereignty, territorial integrity, possibly cynically. You know, Russia obviously violated the Ukrainian's uh, sovereignty and territorial right. integrity, but they have kind of pushed this. And I think that much of the global South um, has also kind of been using this language of sovereignty and, and um uh, territorial integrity and non-interference in, in, in foreign affairs of states. So, um, so yeah, this was, you're absolutely right that this was like a huge deal. In 2011, I think kind of pushed it to an entirely new level because they basically saw a NATO intervention to destroy a state and, you know, the death of a, of, of a leader, you know, um, so that I think, in a way, maybe frightened them um, yeah. in some way. Uh, so, so Russia, yeah, at that point, so it was actually in 2011 at the UN Security Council, China and Russia are, are permanent members. They both abstained from um, from voting, uh, which permitted the kind of gave partial authorization for the uh, campaign to go through. But later on, Syria, Russia exercised its veto power, of course. So absolutely, this is a huge point of divergence and really important, I think, that people don't fully comprehend this sort of uh, how much these cracks were already showing uh, as, as far back as the 90s and how much this, these kind of like avant-garde um, humanitarian interventions really kind of... Uh, upset countries that had you know make great power aspirations for themselves no it's just a general point i want to make but um you know just kind of bookend what you're saying lily but it seems like what we're seeing now almost in well maybe it felt like slow motion but now it feels like accelerated in the past um, few months but this realignment you know and this reckoning right of like this post-colonial history and you're seeing like and it's kind of like I don't know. It's on one on the one hand, it is a bit inspiring when you think you see like Bolivia withdraw um, diplomatic relations with Israel, but then it's sort of this kind of I don't know foreboding reshuffling, right, and kind of preview for the rest of the twenty first century. And we don't know; we're not aware right now who is going to have the monopoly on power and violence when right. we're dealing with the adverse effects of climate change. Right. And, you know, whether it's people, you know, it's just all of this is right. just. I don't know. It's just it's just foreboding and ominous, you know. Yeah, it's just like an uncertain period, and I yes. I, I can't help but feel also inspired by seeing like countries of the global south adopting a more like, assertive position in the world and saying you know and, and you know taking countries like Israel to the the um, international court of justice, um, and you know really making good on these this idea like we are independent actors and we're not going to be like just the subjects of his, uh, or like of our, of your policies. Um, but yeah, it is interesting. And we're in this kind of murky area era of like the emergence of the multipolar world, um, where you see extensive sort of links. The, the global South is now, um, uh, getting uh, involved with China on a level that's quite like uh, remarkable because China has emphasized as an alternative to the liberal order that we've kind of propagated um, uh, a sort of model based on respect for sovereignty, which sound like, and they, which supposedly um, um, some people might say that it's cynical and not true, uh, but they would 
they emphasize this language. We respect sovereignty. We're not going to tell you that you need to have certain sort of like human rights standards. We're just like an economic partner. This is, they call it South-South cooperation. So they're saying we're, and I, I was at the non-aligned uh, summit, um, which is like, that it never gets covered in the Western media, but it's a kind of a very inspiring Cold War uh, movement or like institution um, of countries that didn't want to align with either the uh, NATO or the Soviet Union. They, it was countries emerging from colonialism, and it's the second largest grouping of countries in the world after the United Nations. Uh, and they, their first summit was here in Belgrade, actually, because Yugoslavia had very strong ties with countries emerging from colonialism. They wanted Tito. to chart a third way. Tito, mm. precisely. Right. Um, so yeah, you, they. Uh, I was, yeah, you see this, um, I, I remember the Chinese foreign minister was saying something like, we will always see ourselves as like a developing country, so we are one of you. No, we're not trying to be above you. So that, that that's the kind of, like, they're kind of seeing the criticisms of the West, to, of the West and these, um, uh, the global South, and they're kind of, you know, adopting the, the contrary point, which is like, you know, we don't, we won't, um, we are here as like a peer. We're not looking to sort of tell you that you're like, you know, doing something wrong so that we can like invade you or something. So, so like, it, it, it's interesting. You know, we, I, we, you know, we don't see, know yet like what the, what that world is going to look like. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very completely murky, strange time for sure. Because, and, and it, with the, the U S you know, kind of consolidating power over Europe, I think that it's kind of almost grown since the invasion of Ukraine. You see um, NATO enlargement in like uh, two um, Scandinavian countries and then um, in, in Sweden and Finland. Um, and NATO, of course, is like, you know, the military and political arm of the United States in, 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 the, in Europe, in the Euro-Atlantic space. So, yeah, you see this kind of sh- shrinking, but consolidation of power over Europe and um, by the U.S. Um, but then the rest of the world really... Um, kind of up, it's a really a moment where a lot of things are up for grabs and um, the moral credibility of the United States, I don't, it is now completely gone. It, I'm sure for you know, many of the countries in the global South, they would say it was never, you know, we didn't, it never had it. Um, but I think that the difference now is that we are watching, those of us watching, you know, from the U.S. or those, those of us, like we now, people at home can see it too, right. which is like, I don't know what the implications of that are. Um I um, I'm always astonished at the degree to which the, I mean the the conservatives always say this, uh, Benghazi's not going away, <laughs> but they mean that because Benghazi. They, <laughs> that, I forgot they mean, about that. They mean that in a different way. Um, <laughs> but uh, th- what we did to Libya is really astonishing. I mean, it was like the fifth largest economy in Africa, right? It was like right. you know, and and. Not only does it just completely dismantled and, and you're right, like turned into a failed state, but like the spectacular manner in which Gaddafi was ousted and then literally murdered in front of I mean, like I still remember that video. I, re- I remember that yeah, I remember that shit was on the almost the front page, I think, of the fucking Daily News, man. Right. It was just really it was really it was really bizarre yeah, it was and jarring it just, and like what the fuck? Yeah, it was jarring. It was yeah. Well and then and then also, right, like Hillary Clinton just like dancing on his grave. It's just Yeah. I don't know, um, but uh, this kind of gets at something that, like, you pointed out in another article you wrote for the New Statesman. Um, you were talking about Ukraine, and mm-hmm. the art, the title of that article is "The Realists Were Right." 
And uh, well, first of all, <laughs> I, I, I had listened to you on something else at another podcast. Maybe it was American Prestige. And you were talking about like the blowback you got from, or not blowback, but like backlash <laughs> no you got. Blowback, yeah, yeah, we'll be a <laughs> totally. blowback too. But like the backlash you got to that article and like how pissed people were. And um, I think you wrote this article right around October seventh. And so, like, I'm really wondering now, like, if you wrote the same article now. Obviously, there's this like those nafo morons who like oh my probably God. Still, still be in your mentions yelling at you. But like, I really wonder if you would get the same amount of backlash now. As you no did way. in October, right? It's, cr- it's Absolutely not. I mean, now the head of the, so like, uh, maybe like two months after I wrote that article, the uh, the head of the Ukrainian armed forces said basically the same thing that I wrote in my article. Like he said that you know this is a stalemate, and you know we don't really have a path to victory unless we are you know furnished with m- more supplies. So it was just the timing. I think that it was it. There was the, the the way that the the Ukraine war has kind of the information war has has um, gone and the sort of disconnection the disconnect from reality of what was happening um, has just been sh- like kind of a cavernous. I mean, yeah. I, I, I and I if if you tried to kind of in, inject any sort of reality or you know kind of more slightly more pessimistic or realistic not not even pessimistic realistic thinking realistic Realistic, you would be immediately attacked and and called like a genocide enabler and um you know a putinist and uh really really it was very ugly it's been a really ugly kind of propaganda war um and of course now now everything is quite different because uh it's been you know i think even people who are quite, you know, um, hawkish on Ukraine and 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 maximal want, you know, kind of uh, Ukraine to uh, meet its maximalist aspirations, like um, uh, get all of its territory back, um, which a lot of people say is unrealistic at this right. point. Um, even those people would now say, yeah, like that article has stood up really well. I've had a couple of people even come up to me because the article um i don't know it was this, the news mason was very nice and they said it was like one of their best articles of like you know to the 2023 and like so a lot of people who kind of not a lot but a couple people who like were did wouldn't uh, told, didn't really like the article then said like hey your article like stood you know it, it held up pretty well and like yeah. you know congratulations for that for getting it but yeah it was i've never experienced any kind of like campaign like hate campaign like that um if, for any other topic i mean and i cover the balkans which is like very very it's kind of like a famous balkan twitter is it's, it's like its own beast but um but ukraine was just it's a different it's 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 more hard it's harder core absolutely insane well why can we not ask a question i don't want to get i want to get too off topic but why do you why do you think that is what do you what do you think it is about and i'm seeing this similarly i mean we've seen this similarly with with gaza right with israel people that i have seen posts before that i either followed or liked or even one or two people in my personal life like acquaintances not really really close friends and it's like there's just like the switch is flipped where they just suddenly become like like truly rabid yeah and genocide heirs you know and yes. i just don't and ukraine was the first time where i was kind of like and i guess you could even I can't, I mean, I, yeah, I can't think of a time before that where it was so, it was, where it was like, it was in a position where I felt like that I was being 
like attacked for having opinions that weren't beyond the pale or that weren't yeah. you know what i mean or that weren't very radical or fringe what what do you think like lends to that sort of like 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 rabidity and division you know and divisiveness i guess I mean, I think part of it is is social media. I mean, this is like not yeah. particularly like insightful or anything. Like it's been said a lot, but you know, it lends itself to a certain kind of, um, you know, you, you don't have the constraints you would have maybe in person. But um, but yeah, there and also, there's just something about war that I think for a lot of people now this is like getting kind of like woo or whatever. But like I feel that some people kind of like you know have their own. There, there, there's something that's not that that uh, they're seen in the war. That's not about the war. It's about something that they are kind of like the way that the war is articulating their own kind of. It's reifying. It's almost yeah. reifying something. It's it's reification. I mean, be, I think a reason for Ukraine, especially because like, it's almost like the United States is this waning imperial power. Well, yes. and then Putin and you know what I mean. And now it's like, oh no, we are we can't possibly be losing our place We're in back. the war. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah and it's yeah. almost as if it's like I've said this before. I've repeated myself, but it's almost like this lib- libidinal economy of mm. being reborn in the blood of oppressed people yeah. or re 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 mm. reinforcing America's status on the world. And if like somebody who lives like in some um, suburbs can't feel that sort of reification who is thousands of miles away from this thing then they lose their fucking mind you know yeah well and it's it's even more degraded though because like in light of the conversation we've just had and like i said marking this kind of trajectory from the late 90s to early 2000s like latching onto ukraine as this almost symbol or totem for the either a reification of the old world order or like a creation of a new one latching onto this specific struggle is a very bizarre one and um partially it's frankly loser shit if i can say partially because we created the conditions that led to it in the first place ostracizing yes. russia yes. and built almost like we've remarked before it's like building ukraine up like you've got this bro do it you, you, can, you can beat them bro let's do it like that kind of shit but like, as you point it's, out, as in, in the article, I think this is a great point, Lily. I think that like, and maybe this is a good point to kind of wind down on. But as you point out in the article, if Ukraine is a symbol or a totem for anything, like really what it was was meant to like galvanize at- mm. Atlanticism, right? It was trying to galvanize yeah. NATO. Like you even point out that Macron had said at one point, like NATO is brain dead. Right. So it, it is almost <laughs> a couple like years before, and the war in Ukraine brought it back to life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's that's, almost this necrotic relic, this vestige, right? And that's, that, that's That you have to, like, apply, well, like, the clear, and now it's that's the, like I don't know how many times we've made that comparison or, like, invoked that image on this show. This almost kind of, like, necromancy that the West thinks it can do, where, like, the same thing with the Soviet Union, right? Like, we've slain the beast, and now we're going to raise it from the dead into this new creation of our own. But then it, you know, then they by their own like policies and contradictions can't keep it under control, put people in power that they can't control and that they, then become their own undoing. And it's the same thing with Ukraine. And it's like only a fucking matter of time, right? Before, I mean, I don't know. It's just like, when you, you about, really, if you really think started. about it too long, it really is depressing because like it's just so thinking about like the, the rhetoric and like the hype we've put into Ukraine and like egged them on and like, like they're never going to trust us again obviously like just obviously creating all kinds of seeds for bad you know actors to arise in that void but jesus you're, the thing you, about ghosts totally sorry lily go ahead 
no, 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 I was just going to say, like, you're completely right about the politics and disappointment and, like, the like, God only knows what's going to come out of that. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was going to say, man, I, it might be a pithy statement, but the thing about ghosts, man, is that, like, you know, you can't control them, man. No. You know? It's like they haunt you, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. It's like they haunt you. You, you, can't, you can't, like, use this. I mean, I, I don't know. It's like it's a it's a phrase that um that I've since I've uh, I've learned it or a term a hauntology, you know, and well, how yeah, much yeah, yeah. the West is haunted not by the disappearance, not by the specter of communism, but by its disappearance, you know. Well, it, Ooh, yeah, in I that mean, sense, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is fascinating because I hadn't really put it together in this way before. Great. But in that sense, like Ukraine would be the cause celeb of these like sort of humanitarian interventionist like liberal order of the like the late nineties right. early two thousands. Israel, which is a straight-up ethno-state, like, they don't even, they mince no words, they have no pretensions to any liberal universal ideas, it's almost, it's all just straightforward, like, this is a racial ethno-state. Like, Mm. you would think that, like, these would be two opposing poles on this larger spectrum of, like, a new international order, or, or, or of something that would invigorate, like, NATO and Atlanticism. And you see it on full display when they, um, both overlook like when when they say like it's bad for russia to bomb hospitals and cut off aid and food supply but it's good for israel to do it it's almost like they're just saying that like we're giving up on the liberal universal idea of this of atlanticism we're now embracing the ethno-nationalist right-wing <laughs> right of it. right right that's why it's so conf- it, like it's it's so odd and i have to say like watching it from serbia is so odd because you know we all know the like you know this country kind of almost more than any other like knows the dangers inherent to like sort of extreme ethno-nationalism and this region knows it uh so it's so odd to see it sort of stoked by the u.s which for to to the degree that it is being stoked and and supported in israel and there's um is this idea that like um of exceptionalism that they were trying to kind of um, hold on to from the unipolar moment. But I don't know if it's tenable in the multipolar world. And we're going to see, I think, actually, day of, I think it's tomorrow, we're going to see what the ICJ says about um, whether or not that they will order a um, like a, basically a ceasefire uh, and because it's compelling, the case is compelling enough. Uh, and that's going to be huge. And I think that actually the West kind of can't win either way, either um, if, if the, uh, the ICJ says like, you know, you, this is like a genocide, right? You know, we need to like, they're not, the, the case is gonna take a, several years uh, to, to be like um, cited upon, but we're gonna hear, I think tomorrow or the day after, um, whether or not uh, these like extraordinary measures will be invoked to kind of stop the war. Um, and, you know, if the West, if 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 the court rules in favor of South Africa and says like you know the then then every Western country is implicated you know we are right. accomplices, but yeah. if it doesn't if if the court rules against uh, South South Africa and says like you know we don't need to like in you know um, uh, order a, a say a ceasefire, then the entire artifice like or the international law itself will have no credibility in the eyes of like not only the global south but a lot of us watching yeah and like what do we do with that i mean like what does that mean it's almost like a no man's land almost yeah Yeah, Yeah. totally totally and what does that mean for like everybody who is 
you know, for all the previous uh, uh, cases that came before this court, this is basically an apartheid, now it's an apartheid court with one sort of justice for for the, the global north and one for the global south. It's just like terrifying. We're, so it's, it's, I don't know, it's a, kind of a lose-lose for the West. Yeah, um, yeah. And, yeah. And, and Lily, I know we were, we're um, winding down, but, um, you know, you have this other, other article that Terrence had sent me, um, which I think the title was um, was really good. It was uh, The Conjuring Trick. And um, you talk about how the European countries are dealing with these contradictions by, and we see it reflected, of course, the source, right, is the Biden administration, which we started the show with this. On the one hand, can talk about either providing humanitarian aid or pressuring Israel to stem civilian casualties while also giving them weapons, right? And how we have almost this schizophrenic sort of response, yeah, right, even from governments in Europe that, that, that just in one, I'd say one thing and then say the other thing. And it's just like, how do you reconcile those contradictions? You know, Even the ones that you would think support, like Ireland, like you yeah. pointed out, like there's reports that the way was it, like Shannon Air Base in, in Dublin yeah. is like that's where they're funneling fun, uh, yeah. arms, arms to Israel through. I mean, it's yeah. really yeah. astonishing. Yeah. Yeah, the rhetoric kind of uh, this kind of humanitarian rhetoric kind of conceals this, you know, basic support for U.S. policy. Um, And, you know, yeah, all of the countries that have kind of seemed more reasonable, Ireland, Spain, um, those are the two big ones, Belgium, Belgium as well, have, you know, all in some ways also been very complicit and very happy to uh, further the the war effort or or um, sort of keep down the more sort of uh, uh, stronger critics in their own kind of governments who are openly saying this is a genocide, you know. So, um, th- th- yeah, it's been this real sort of, it's in a way mirrored our own response, where, but in, in a kind of, um, if you look at like Europe uh, as a kind of whole. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's very odd. Well, um, I think that's a good place to end on. And I think that if you look at it this way, like, uh, obviously, like their mixed response is like a, a, a very emblematic of the breakdown of this liberal order. Like they don't really have any vision for the future. They realize that their past ideologies and doctrines are kind of decrepit and they kind of try to conjure a way forward out of it. But they don't. It, what it winds up being is a trick. It's not an actual uh, it's not an actual act of uh, necromancy or magic. It is just a trick that. It, it, you it almost seems like a placeholder for the inevitable. You it's know? a placeholder. Like, right. Precisely. Yeah, and, yeah. But like, yeah. as you said, if there's any hope, it does lie in the fact that perhaps the global South is able to use some of these international frameworks and mechanisms to bear pressure on the global yes. North here. So um, I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, Lily, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, sorry thank we you kept for you. Having um, me. No, no, thank you for talking to us at all. Because I mean, for uh, for the past month, we've been the past few months we've been talking about this. It's uh, it's it's good to have somebody on. Here, it's very know? helpful, and, and like I said, right? Like yeah. Aaron and I, probably me even more than Aaron, I'm an extremely parochial individual. Never even you're not. The what are you talking no. about? You know everything. <laughs> like you just have like a very interesting conversation. Like what do you like? You know more than people hear about this country, like the regions. Like well, I, stop it. We, we make it. We make a joke here where we call ourselves the Tardy Boys, which is right. sort of a reflection on sort, sort of like <laughs> we're a little our, late. Our master. Yeah, it's also we're a little late. Um, you know, uh, what is it? No. What's that term? Um, master of done. You know, you're right. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I feel the same way. Yeah, joke. Uh, Jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But that's um, cool. Yeah. Well, Lily, if uh, people want to read more of your stuff, if they want to follow you on social media, where can they find you? 
Um, I usually uh, write for the New Statesman and New Left Review. Um, I'm hopefully launching a Substack in the next week or two. Um, uh, you can also follow me on, uh, I hate calling it X, but Lily S. Lynch. So you can follow me there. Awesome. <laughs> uh, oh. And I'm on Instagram, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, it does matter. It does matter if you're an <laughs> Thank influencer. You. <laughs> I'm not. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much, Lily. Uh, please go check out Lily's work. And you can also go check out our premium episodes at Patreon. You know where to find us. It's in the show notes. So please go support us there. Uh, until next time, Lily, we'll see you then. Thank Bye. you so much. Thank you for coming on. I'll see you all later. Ciao.